Welcome to the Innovation Engine Podcast. Since 2014, we've been bringing you conversations with some of the world's leading authorities on innovation. Topics we cover include technology, culture, leadership, and more. Coming to you from Three Pillar Global Studio in Fairfax, Virginia, here's your host, Will Sherlin. Welcome back to the Innovation Engine Podcast. On this week's episode, we'll be looking at security in the software development space. Among the topics we'll discuss are why security is of paramount importance when it comes to developing software, how a company called Codescope is working to help developers of all stripes build more secure software from the start, and the role their new developer tool called JAX plays in that mission. Here with us today to talk about all that and more is Gary Jackson, the CEO of Codescope. Gary brings with him over 25 years of software leadership experience. He grew Shunra Software to become an industry-recognized authority in network virtualization and application performance engineering before being acquired by HP in 2014. He also spearheaded the growth and sale of Ounce Labs to IBM. Ounce Labs technology has become IBM's flagship enterprise code scanning tool. Gary has previously held leadership positions at a variety of high-tech companies, including Quova, an IP geolocation service, Osro, contract negotiation software, and Vantiv, CRM software. In the interest of full disclosure, Codescope is a client of three pillars, and we couldn't be more pleased that that's the case. Welcome to the podcast, Gary. Hello. I'm happy to be here. Absolutely. We're happy to have you. So let's kick things off today talking about the importance of security in the world of software. There have been a number of high-profile security breaches in recent years, from Target to Home Depot to more recently LinkedIn and the Democratic National Committee, among others. Are those the kinds of data breaches that Codescope looks to help organizations prevent? Uh, yes, well, they are. And the, it, it would be easy to lump those uh, public announcements into the same bucket, but they actually represent fairly different uh, types of attacks and data losses. Uh, but absolutely, those are the kinds of things that we're intending to prevent. Um, you really have to start with a different mindset about what you're going to protect. And it starts with the assumption that bad guys are already behind the firewall <clears throat> or they've social engineered their way in through some sort of a phishing or spear, spear phishing activity or they've placed a human inside your firewall either as a third-party contractor or as a plant. So if you start with that assumption, you're going to build applications differently and you're going to protect them differently. Yeah, that, that's a scary assumption to start with, but I guess that's that's what you have to do in this day and age. It's it's going to be true most of the time. So you might as well start with that assumption. Yeah. Okay. So so we live in a world where even Mark Zuckerberg, the founder of arguably the most successful tech company of all time, is not immune to getting his own Facebook account hacked. Uh, there were news reports uh, last week that, that showed his uh, computer with the uh, video camera taped up and the audio jack taped up to try to prevent him from hacking, but his Facebook password was found out recently. So question for you, if Mark Zuckerberg can't keep his own information private, what hope is there for the rest of us? 
I think there is hope, and it, it falls into three areas. The first is educating your consumers. Um, we're all familiar with, let's say, banking applications where there is a multi-factor approach to getting access to your account. And I can tell you that even asking my friends and family if they know what multi-factor authentication means, they're going to look at me with a blank stare. But the reality is, if I'm going to log into my bank, not only do I have a username and password, but they've recorded the device that I'm accessing the account from, and they're also looking at certain behavioral information about how I'm accessing the account. So in the banking world, that's mandated. That's required. <clears throat> not so much in the, in the world of e-commerce and social and online services. So if we educate our consumers to understand that we're going to protect them, we can protect them, but it might involve you know, a few seconds of inconvenience to validate who they are, then that, that's half the problem, honestly. That's half the problem. Mm -hmm. The other half of the problem is you know, vendors like Facebook have not required, for instance, frequent password changes. They, they have not required uh, a second factor of authentication, like what device you're accessing the account from. <clears throat> and so as vendors, I think we can become a little bit more diligent and accept you know, that it will slightly inconvenience our users, but as a result, protect people in a much more effective way. And then finally, we can build the applications in a more secure way from the start. And if we, and if we build the applications securely from the start, even someone who social engineers their way into the app is going to have limited access to dangerous information. And there are six key areas that Codescope lays out as vitally important for companies to ensure are secure. They include things like infrastructure control, application control, data protection, rugged development, security verification, and transparency. So I think that a number of those will be familiar to listeners but what do you mean when you talk about rugged development? Sure. So that, that brings the problem squarely into the hands of the individual developers and the processes that their companies ask them to abide by. You know, when it, it's, it's sad but true that most developers today get no training on coding securely in college. It, it doesn't exist in undergraduate programs. There may be three that I'm aware of at the master's level and almost nothing at the PhD level in the United States. So they don't get trained on it in school. Um, fewer than 5% of the people that we talk to have any training on the job. So it starts with uh, a company putting a policy in place that defines a secure development lifecycle. You know, how am I storing my code? What access to the code is, is possible from inside the company, from Starbucks or from anywhere else in the world? It, it then continues with um, specific training. So, you know, it, it's not that hard nowadays to actually access online training that will help you understand how to code securely in whatever environment you're coding in. So, you know, if companies put some emphasis on it, then uh, they can harden and, um, well, I'm not sure if the right word is uh, uh, rugged development, but they can certainly harden the development. And then finally, put in some way to measure 
whether it's actually being used or not. There are, you know, there are a lot of there are a lot of companies who have policies but don't have an effective way of measuring it. So part of what we do is help people measure it. Yeah, and, and so would I uh, would I be correct in assuming that you feel like there there's maybe too much of an emphasis placed on the the old Facebook motto of move fast and break things in the world of modern day software development as as pertains to security. Um, <laughs> let me let me put it to you this way: um, fifteen years ago, if you asked a developer to build unit testing and quality testing initiatives into their code and into their release of their code prior to passing it over the wall to the build process, they'd laugh at you. You know, there, there was no such thing as developer-driven testing 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. There, was, there was a QA department that did that. And anything that they had to do to respond to the bugs that came back to them from QA was viewed as an impediment to, their, to them getting their job done. Now, it'd be, you'd almost never find a developer that didn't understand that it was his responsibility to build some level of quality and unit-level testing into the code that he's submitting. Security falls into a very similar category. Uh, it is still the case today that very few developers understand what it means to code securely. And if you ask them to take on the task of reviewing their code for security issues, they will view it as a blocker, as an impediment to getting their jobs done, unless you can find a way that it fits in the development lifecycle that they're really living in. So that's that's where Codescope comes in. That's why we were formed. Yeah, and, and you recently released a product called Jax that can help developers with that. Can you give listeners a bit of background on what Jax is and how developers can put it into practice? Sure. Um, well, first of all, it's today it's a free product for developers. So jax.codistope.com, uh, you can get to it right now and try it out if you're in the JavaScript or the mean stack um, that we're focused on with the with the first release. So the, the the principle is this: most security products throughout the last 20 year history of uh, code analysis tools have been sold at a senior executive level, usually a CIO or a CISO. And you know they're buying a big box, and then they're having to jam it down the throats of the developers to convince them to use it. And in most cases, what it does is pile up security-related bugs, which they don't really know how to prioritize, and they certainly don't have the expertise to fix. Jack's intention is to flip that model completely upside down. So instead of starting from the top down, uh, right in line with building your code, you're being alerted to potential security issues. We're showing you how to fix them with an emphasis on the educational aspect of it. And then we're actually giving you an opportunity to extend your knowledge by moving into an e-learning library that further explains that issue and can actually certify you as, as effective in that, uh, in that issue. And then we're able to measure in future uh, uses of the product and in future code builds whether or not you have reintroduced similar issues uh, downstream. If, if you've learned what we think you should learn, you won't introduce those issues ever again. Okay, got it. And, and you mentioned that it's available for the, the mean stack now. Uh, are, there, are there future technology stacks that you'll be looking to, to deploy it for? 
Yes, it's really about language coverage. We started with what we thought was the hardest problem, which is JavaScript. So it's Node.js with Express, uh, Happy, React, <clears throat> MongoDB. That's really the main stack. But uh, we're very shortly going to release the AngularJS framework coverage, um, Java coverage with an emphasis on the Spring framework, and then rapidly followed by PHP and .NET. Okay, very nice. So, so one of the key selling points of JAX is that it helps developers actually ship code faster. How does it help speed up the process of shipping code to production? So if, if you are in an environment where there is a security guy somewhere, and let's say most of the large companies or Fortune 500 have a security, you know, application security department, before any code is released into the wild, it goes through one of these scanning factories, one of the big box tools, similar to the one that I sold, you know, when I um, sold uh, Ounce Labs to IBM. The problem with those is that it takes usually some weeks for that, for that cycle to occur. And then I get dumped on my head like a basket full of bricks, um, a report that says, go fix your baby. It's broken in a whole bunch of ways which typically then slows me down and forces me to reopen code that I might not have looked at for weeks, possibly months, which then interrupts whatever new project I'm working on and can take as much as 30 or 40% of my full development time. And by finding security issues as I'm building the code and fixing them in real time, I eliminate all of those delays. And so the customers that we have deployed have been telling us they see a 30 to 40% improvement in their productivity by not having to deal with security issues later. Very nice. So, so some, of the, some of the reactions are there to see on the jax.codescope.com site, some nice praise from developers who have put it into practice. I assume the, uh, the reaction has been relatively positive if, if people who are putting it into practice are seeing that kind of reduction in, in the amount of time it takes to ship code? Well, that plus just the, I, I would say, shock that they have in, in discovering the areas of their code that they just took for granted were safe and have you know, since learned are not so safe. You know, 70% of code development today starts with open source, um, open source modules, frameworks, and uh, repos that exist in places like GitHub. And the reality is uh, the vast majority of them have inherent flaws, security vulnerabilities, and especially in the areas of dependencies, um, uh, things that nobody has looked at and are just taking for granted are, are security solid. Uh, I, I think we can show you within, literally within minutes, not hours, not days, but within minutes, uh, where the most significant issues are in your code. So, the, yeah, the reaction has been very strong. Even in the, the, the very skeptical security community, um, we're finding things that nobody else has found. But in the developer community, they're delighted with the fact that it works in line with their normal processes and doesn't slow them down. Yeah, and, and there's a big button right there on the site that says analyze my repo for free. So I gather the way it works is you, you point Jax to a GitHub repo and it scans all of the code and then lets you know where the vulnerabilities are. It does, and it's, and it's lightning fast, Will. Uh, I mean, we can look at a 20 megabit source code base 
in less than a second. Wow. Okay, nice. So, so let me ask, Jax isn't the only security product that Codascope has out on the market. You've also created something called Secure Assist. What is Secure Assist and how does it differ from Jax? Sure. So Secure Assist is, is one of the products and assets that we acquired from Sigital when we formed the company last year as an independent company and spun out of Sigital. Uh, Secure Assist was designed some four years ago as an IDE plugin. So it works only within uh, Eclipse, IntelliJ, or Visual Studio. And again, it, it, its intention is to provide the same sort of reaction that you would get and the same results you would get from Jax. But again, it, it works only as an IDE plugin at this point. It works on premise, so you actually have to download software. And it works on three languages today, which is Java, .NET, and PHP. Um, so Jax is focused on JavaScript. Uh, Secure Assist was focused on three other languages. Over time, those two products are going to converge, and there will be a single platform. Okay, nice. And and you mentioned uh, Sigital in that answer. For listeners that may not be familiar with Sigital, can you give some background information on that company and how Codoscope was formed? Uh, sure. So Sigital is one of the pioneers and first companies that dedicated a consulting practice to application security. They started back in the early 90s. Uh, they began building the the phrase build security in in the mid 90s and they provide a combination of managed services uh, on-site consulting remediation services and uh, security assessments comparing you with other industry uh, security practices uh, there are about 400 consultants today and I've known the principals and the founders of Sigital for quite some time so it was a, a natural fit um, when uh, when we agreed to form a new company and take some of the assets out of Sigital, the first was Secure Assist, and the other one is a is an extensive e-learning library where we have over 28 courses that are specifically focused on uh, how to code securely. So it's been a, a fine partnership, and Sigital continues to provide resources and act as a reseller of our products. And, and we've mentioned the, uh, the jax.codoscope.com URL. I assume that that's where listeners should go if they're interested in getting hands-on with Jax and employing it in their development projects? Yes, and between the time of you know, arriving at the landing page and getting to your first uh, uh, scan of a repo should take you less than two minutes. Let me circle back to what we were talking about with the first question and these high-profile data breaches that seem to be popping up every week. What could some of these companies do differently or have done differently? And what are some things that listeners out there might want to take into consideration in their everyday lives as consumers? So, you know, in, in the case of the large retail shops like Target and Home Depot, you know, one of, one of their... Um, one of their core value propositions is to use their credit services, use their credit cards, for instance, which adds a layer of concern if you're a consumer as to how, how you'll be protected if that particular device or that particular credit product gets, uh, gets hacked. You know, one of the advantages of Amex, MasterCard, and Visa is all of them adhere to industry standards and what's called the PCI standard that not only 
defines the protection of the consumer's information on those cards, but also protects you in the event of a breach and gives you appropriate reimbursement and identity remediation if your identity has been stolen. Um, that's, that's not necessarily so well-defined with the individual credit card companies coming from those, uh, coming from those uh, retailers' brand credit cards. So that's the first issue. Second issue is um, one of the things that was, was clear from the Home Depot breach, don't ever use your ATM card at a, at a retail shop. I don't care whether it's I don't care whether it's Home Depot or the hot dog vendor on the sidewalk. Um, use one of the credit cards that I, that I mentioned where you know there's uh, sufficient protection. Uh, your ATM card should only ever be used in an ATM machine. So that's the first thing that I'm going to say, or okay. the second thing, second thing that I'm going to say. Yeah. Um, you know, in, in the case of Target, um, and and actually in the case of Home Depot, there was well documented. Um, let's call it physical security mistakes, where not only did they allow third-party vendors into their physical infrastructures, but they gave third-party vendors um, really unprecedented access to their back doors, to their back office systems. And um, there are you know, physical practices and there are IT, you know, just general IT uh, prevention and security practices that were not followed, and and to to be blunt, in the accounts that I'm talking to today are still not being followed. Um, so this, unfortunately, is not part of the problem that I can fix. The part of it that I can, that I can fix, however, is that if one of those bad guys is in your door already, I'm going to teach you how to uh, position your code and transport your code and store your code and uh, aggressively destroy certain aspects of the transaction that you don't ever want anyone to see. So even if a bad guy does get in the door, he shouldn't have access to very much. And is it the type of thing where it can also help you figure out who, maybe who the bad guys are and, and where they are trying to penetrate? It's interesting. A financial uh, account talked to me earlier today and indicated that 90% of his security dollars are spent on what they call the operational monitoring applications and tools. So, you know, they spend an enormous amount of money detecting when a bad guy or somebody unauthorized is trying to do something that they're not supposed to do. However, very little of that helps them actually then go and catch the guy because it's, it's not fast enough, even if it's in real time. It doesn't necessarily give them the kind of information they need to isolate, you know, who the perpetrator is. It just, you know, helps them shut off a pathway, close down a server, you know, tighten up a particular access path, but it doesn't necessarily get them to the bad guy. Mm -hmm. So I I guess what I'm saying is, you know, 90% of security dollars are being spent on tools that are only minimally effective. You know, I'm convinced from the data that we're seeing that 50% of all of the, these breaches could be eliminated by just writing more secure code from the beginning. Wow. That's a, that's a staggering number. 
And, and let me go back and ask about uh, about the, the credit card thing with the major retailers and the ATM cards. So I, I'd never heard, don't use your ATM card. Certainly good to know. I mean, I use my credit card most of the time anyway. But are, are the changes that uh, major retailers are, are being forced to make with the new credit card readers something that are uh, that are making these hacks less likely to happen? So it's it's making it harder to use uh, a stolen card or to use a scanned or skimmed card. Uh, so that's that's what that um, access control method is is designed to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I was I was in uh, a, let's call it a cyber shop in Beijing some years ago, <clears throat> and was brought into a back room and was shown that even with the new chip and pin cards that the European banks had recently deployed, um, there was skimmer technology that could replicate that card in less than a minute. Okay, so so not bulletproof by any stretch of the imagination. Not bulletproof. In other words, you don't just because I have a card that works in your reader doesn't mean I am who you think I am. Okay, that's good to know, and I will be sure to keep a close eye on my wallet at least until that's replaced by Venmo or Bitcoin or whatever digital solution may eventually come to pass for the physical wallet. Gary, thanks so much for coming on to talk about security in the software development space. Any final words of wisdom for our listeners out there? I firmly believe that we're at a we're at a positive turning point with a lot of these problems in that the problems have been well enough defined now and we have realistic approaches to maybe starting to move the needle in our direction versus the bad guys that have been gaining on us. Uh, and it just takes a little bit of discipline. It, it isn't. It, I'm not even asking my clients to spend more money than they've spent in the past. In most cases, just a shift in their thinking. Right. And, and Jax is free for now. So if you're on that, that mean stack or use JavaScript, go to jax.codescope.com and check it out. Uh, Gary, thanks so much for coming on and talking about security in the software development space. Thank you, Will. If you'd like to learn more about Gary Jackson, Codescope, or Jax, You can visit Codescope's website at www.codescope.com. As we mentioned several times during the course of the episode, you can also learn more about JAX and test it out for free at jax.codescope.com. That's J-A-C-K-S. You can also follow Codescope on Twitter at at Codescope for information on all things security related. Thanks again to Gary Jackson for joining us for this episode of the podcast, and thank you for joining us. Don't forget to tune into the next episode of the podcast when we're going to break free of the confines of the studio and do something that we haven't done since the NAB show in Las Vegas in 2014. We're going to be taking our handy Roland audio recorder and the Innovation Engine podcast is hopping on the Amtrak and going up to take on Manhattan will be attending the first annual Rights Tech Summit in New York, which is a new endeavor from friend of the podcast, Ned Sherman, and his partner in crime, Paul Sweeting. So we'll record interviews from the Rights Tech Summit, which is, in its own words, a one-day executive leadership conference that brings together cross-industry leaders 
focused on furthering technology innovation around rights management and licensing across multiple media verticals. Now that's quite a mouthful, but I'll be talking with Ned and Paul about what they hope attendees get out of the conference. And as I mentioned, I'll also be interviewing a number of the subject matter experts that are panelists or speakers at the conference, including Three Pillars own Adi Shikara. So don't forget to tune in to that episode, which will be coming your way on Monday, August 1st. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next time. The Innovation Engine podcast is recorded, produced, edited, and published by Three Pillar Global, a product lifecycle management and software development company based in Fairfax, Virginia. For more information on the company or our services, please visit our website at www.threepillarglobal.com.